0: You know, I like that you use the term cult. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's good because, you know, to me, branding and popularity kind of go, go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, to me, flavors or those that are able to define flavors, you know, are, are basically it kind of falls into the same game.
1: Welcome to the Daily Coffee Pro by Mapper Forward Friends. I'm your host, Lee Safar, and this is episode three of a five-part series where we are talking about tasting coffee, but we're not talking about the kind of thing that you might, we're not talking key lime pie, we're not talking about passion fruit, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the kind of more nuanced philosophical economic uh, associations with tasting coffee. In this episode, uh Costa, we're going to talk about assigning financial values to the subjectivity of flavor and what ramifications that has. So what ramifications does it have?
0: Yeah, you know, like what I ended up talking about beforehand um in the in the previous episode is is this idea that like you know, if if taste isn't objective, if we can go ahead and, and use just that framework for now, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and if we're essentially trying to describe um, volatile compounds, but these volatile compounds, you can express themselves as different flavors. So, you know, I used the example of almond and cherry and we could taste the same coffee and we would both be right. But like, what we end up doing, you know, is basically assigning one, you know, I would say symbolic value, you know, Mm -hmm. this coffee, you know, tastes like cherry. And because we have this presupposition that Frutio coffees are just better, more inherent, Mm -hmm. pure of flavor, you know, then we assign it a higher cup score. And if we assign it a higher cup score, then we, you know, we assign it with higher financial value, Mm. um, you know, versus something like almond. You know, an almond tends to not be valued nowhere near as close as it is, you know, by buyers across the board. Um, and so, to me, you know, like this isn't, this isn't a search for objectivity in coffee. Um, this is, in my opinion, an attempt at practicing consensus making, mm-hmm. and because we're attempting to manage basically the subjective experience of humans around taste, mm-hmm. and we make this very in my opinion, uncomfortable, um, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? It's just slipping my mind, compromise, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that if we're going to – that we should assign, like, flavors certain financial values, Mm -hmm. but, like, those financial values are based off of, like, subjective experiences and, and not objective experiences whatsoever, and what that tends to what tends to happen is, you know, those that have more symbolic and financial capital end up basically creating the game. Like it's their flavors that they like that end up being rewarded with higher symbolic value and as well as like financial value. Um, go on. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say really quickly. You know, um, anthropologist Ted Fisher um you know he describes third wave coffee with uh coe as like this winner take all economic scheme it's this idea that you bring a whole bunch of coffees together and the highest coffee ends up you know winning at the end of the day uh but the ones who end up defining on who wins you know he he takes this twist on marx he's not a marxist but he takes this twist on marx that it's not about owning the means of production i.e it's not about owning the farm it's not about owning the coffee or the workers, it's about for him owning the finance, or excuse me, the symbolic means of production, the assigning meaning to the coffee itself. What flavors are there in the coffee and what it's worth? It's the same way, for example, he uses the example of Apple in Apple's IP and branding as owning the symbolic means of production. They don't own mining companies in China, for example. They end up purchasing it you know, on pennies for the dollar But it's really their branding, i.e. their symbolic capital, that ends up determining the financial value of that coffee. And within specialty coffee, it's typically those that have both symbolic uh, capital as well as financial capital that end up basically determining what's objective or not.
1: And I guess that we need to look at the nuance in that of different industries. And what I mean by that is the commercial coffee industry and the specialty coffee industry. Because branding is playing a role in all of these. And, and my question to you would be, what role do markets play in this?
0: Oh gosh, oh could you?
1: Because at the end of the
0: continue,
1: day, please? a buyer can go vote on a COE coffee, or bid on a, on a COE coffee, win that lot. And if they don't move that coffee, it means fucking nothing. Like at the end of the day, that coffee has nowhere near the value that was associated with it. And the person who purchased the coffee is left holding that with no economic uh, out for that, like no no economic gain. Unless they have a brand that's well-known and they can trick their consumers if they've built up enough of a cult to convince them that they should buy this coffee. Now taste has nothing to do with it. Now we have convinced people by writing stuff on a bag that, you know, it tastes like diamonds and rainbows and fucking cherries and whatever it is. Now we're using that as a way to push an economic agenda that has nothing to do with the objectivity or the subjectivity of flavor. Now it becomes a game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And oh go ahead please.
1: What role do you think that that market dynamic has to do with this?
0: Yeah. Um you know, it's it's I don't know. I mean, I think I think my current opinion at the moment, you know, is it's it's basically, you know, those that have
1: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mapper Forward's first on-demand workshop, How to Become a Coffee Consultant, available now online for you to learn at your own pace with a certificate available upon completion. Click the link in the show notes to access today for just 50 euros.
0: You know, I like that you use the term cult. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's good because, you know, to me, branding and popularity kind of go, go hand in hand, um, and you know to me flavors or those that are able to define flavors you know are are basically it kind of falls into the same game you know like if if like you know a brand that's considered a marketing darling describes the coffee as xyz um you know at that point like they end up winning and and ted fisher ends up kind of building you know he ends up building like this example of within coe um you know those that are coe winners tend to get cup of you know- excellence
1: for anybody who doesn't know what we mean by coe cup of excellence go ahead
0: yeah so cup of excellence you know let's say top 20 winners get anywhere between 4 to you know 100 times worth the value of that coffee and what he ended up doing in his paper um i think it's quality versus inequality um is he looked at a geographic region within guatemala um and identified where a few cup of excellence winners were and then the farms that were neighboring it um, mm-hmm. basically collected all those samples. Let's say, 50, you know, four producers were Cup of Excellence winner. There's 50 producers in mm-hmm. the area, collects all of them, ends up going to a cupping lab and a cafe, cups the coffees. They all score similar. Mm-hmm. What's the difference at the end of the day? You know, those mm-hmm. that essentially were able to afford to like enter into this competition in the first place. Um, and those that were able to go ahead and assign it, you know, like a a cup score and the fact that it had the cup of excellence label on it, like that's, that's the, that's the only difference at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It's the brand. Help people, help
1: people who don't understand the role of cupping, help people understand at origin versus the rosary, what the difference between those two cupping objectives is.
0: Ooh. Okay. So I'm going to give it a shot and let me know if I'm on the right track. Okay um yeah you're so... a green coffee buyer <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I mean
1: it's, it's... <laughs> <And> a trader <laughs> right like this you know, tra- <laughs> is this is your wheelhouse so go ahead I'm not going to correct Perfect. you on this
0: <laughs> yeah good 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 yeah so I mean like if I put myself in the shoes of like a green coffee trader or a buyer you know for the most part if I'm just looking at sensory analysis what I'm looking mm-hmm. for are flavors that resonate with me um, and mm-hmm. I'm also looking for consistency and I have to stick within a budget. Um, right. yeah.
1: And you're, you're yeah. scoring that coffee based on the green, the quality mm-hmm. of the green, you're scoring it on based yeah. on, on its processing method, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Coffee roasters, a score, a, a, hold on one other thing. You're scoring that cup for defects as well.
0: Yeah. Like, like, what you're tasting, intimate Intimate, right? intimate, intimate details to it. Yeah.
1: Based on the green.
0: Mm-hmm
1: you're You're ignoring the roast,
0: yeah, as much as possible
1: as much as possible right <laughs>
0: yes. yeah
1: a roaster that's cupping a co- his coffee or her coffee or their coffee they are heavily focusing on any potential roasting defects as well as trying to pick up the green coffee or what they can taste in the green coffee and so and the so the reason I mention this is so for those who are trying to understand why we're talking about. Cupping at origin, it's a very different objective. When we're cup of excellence cupping versus, and what we're tasting there, what we're looking to taste when we're tasting coffee at origin and cupping at origin is very different. On based on what's happening on the consuming end, when we're when we're cupping coffees in the roastery, that itself is another layer to the complexity of what we're talking about when we are assigning economics to taste. Why people are making buying decisions at origin versus the consumer making buying decisions based on a cup score or the the flavors that we're assigning. The roast itself is going to impact the way that that coffee is expressed. You may roast the, the cherry out of the coffee if you don't know what you're doing. Or you may intentionally roast the cherry out of the coffee if you do know what you're doing, which is a completely different assignment of what's happening when people are cupping it at origin. And I, the, the thing that blows my fucking mind about this industry is that we don't do enough to help people understand that. This is such a complex agricultural product with such a complicated supply and value chain. And we have the lowest barrier to fucking entry of pretty much any industry. Why? And we talk about these things as though they're actual fact. Like taste is fact. And it's just not. And we don't give people nearly enough room to have opinions and nearly enough of a comfort zone to be able to express what they're experiencing that in that coffee without being hounded about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like those two different, um, those two different processes kind of come with two different attitudes as well. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're, when you're sampling coffees, you know, green coffee in particular, and you're having a sample roast, you're typically treating it with like a deep level of suspicion, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I mean, even the cupping form itself, before, before there was a hundred point cupping form, there was a 50 point cupping form. Mm. And the SCA cupping form was developed, what it ended up doing, the biggest difference that it ended up doing was um, institutionalizing defects. There wasn't a space for defects before the SCA cupping form. Mm. And the reason that the space was made for the cupping form or for defects on the cupping form uh, was inherently to punish coffees. And so that is the attitude in which you end up going into like cupping green coffee, you know. And if I put myself in the shoes of a roaster, you know, who ends up purchasing the coffee, I'm not no longer looking to go ahead and, and punish a coffee. I'm trying to maximize certain characteristics of that coffee. It's almost like a complete yeah. mind switch. In mind.
1: Well, and the nuance of that is that, like, who are you buying coffee for? Like, and what's the purpose of that coffee? What are you going to be using that coffee for if it is going to be something that is going to be end up in a blender? And like you're going to blend that coffee. And the purpose of that coffee is to be a blender coffee. You have a whole different frame of decision-making Um thought processes that go into purchasing that coffee versus purchasing into the single origins that you're buying. And are you buying for third wave shops? Are you buying for, you know, 7-Eleven? Yeah. So perhaps the frame of reference, and and look folks, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm so confused now, like how am I supposed to rate if a coffee tastes good in inverted commas? Because that's what people assign a financial value to, right? Does this coffee give me the hug that I'm looking for? If it does, it's worth the money that I'm going to spend on. If it doesn't, it's not worth the money that I'm going to spend on it. And that, that aligns across the entire supply chain. The complexity of what good means and the complexity of what you're looking for is so nuanced that deciding if a coffee is worth it Requires its own thesis, <laughs> like, if, and that, and that's the nuance that our industry operates at. So, in the next episode, uh, that's where we're going to answer that question: Does the role that taste plays in our industry create a power dynamic? Because the money is where the power starts to come in. The decisions that lead to the power, the money conversation is where the power dynamic happens, and so we're going to explore that in the next episode. Please join us. Peace love and peanut butter. Have an amazing rest of your day.